Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On today's episode, I speak with Livia Cohen-Shapiro about ethics and yoga, specifically as it relates to teacher-student relationships. Livia holds a Master's of Somatic Counseling Psychology from Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. She's practiced and taught yoga for nearly two decades, and her dedication to understanding the human experience is lifelong. Through yoga teacher training modules and online courses, Livia educates teachers on ethics, emotional literacy, psychologically sound, and trauma-aware teaching. Because this is such a complex and nuanced topic, and one that's very important to me personally as someone who teaches yoga, I felt it deserves a longer introduction. Livia and I cover a lot in our conversation, but I thought it might be useful to give some background on why I wanted to interview her and have this discussion on my podcast. One aspect of all medicine paths, whether that's yoga, shamanism, or any other healing modality, is the integral role of the teacher, counselor, or mentor figure. The relationship we have with our teacher or students can be very complex, and there are often subtle dynamics playing out below the surface of our consciousness 
that can lead to a lot of potential problems if we're not aware of them, or if they're being exploited to manipulate the other person, whether consciously or unconsciously. And the subject of yoga teachers engaging in specifically sexual relationships with their students has been an issue since the Cultural Revolution of the 1960s and the arrival of progressive, non-traditional Indian gurus in America, people like Osho, Rajneesh, and Muktananda. At that time, Western culture was also going through a sexual revolution, and some of those teachers made the breaking of sexual taboos a central part of their teaching. And some of them exploited that openness more covertly, publicly promoting celibacy, but privately sleeping with their students. More recently, stories of popular teachers engaging in sexual relations with their students has been a hot topic in the yoga world, whether the sex was consensual or not. And this hit close to home for me a few years ago when some former students of a teacher that I'd been publicly involved with came to me and told me about how they'd been in sexual relationships with him and without going into any details that it had been a basically negative experience. And at that time I spoke with my teacher and when it became clear that we had some different views on this topic, I decided to sever my ties with him and his organization. And then last year, when a different woman went public with her story about him, I felt compelled to make a public statement um, that made it clear that I didn't feel that sex between teacher and student was appropriate and that I had separated from my teacher over this issue. When I did that, I received a lot of support um, and also a lot of criticism for addressing this publicly. And it led me to really looking at my own ideas about ethics in yoga and to get clear on where I stand on this topic. So in doing that, I did a lot of research and reading on professional standards of other fields. Uh, I spoke with my mentors, I consulted different experts, and the conclusion that I've come to is that it's an incredibly complex and nuanced subject with many layers. In my research, I found that unlike other helping and teaching professions, the yoga community doesn't have a standardized code of ethics specific to this topic of consensual sex between teacher and student. The Yoga Alliance, for instance, doesn't even mention it in their code of conduct. They only speak about harassment as it's defined by the law of the land, which I feel is a bit of a cop-out. I just don't think that they want to get their hands dirty and deal with the complaints they inevitably get from their membership. They're the largest nonprofit organization representing the yoga community, and their stated mission is to promote and support the integrity of the teaching of yoga. So I think not having a firm position on consensual sexual relations between teacher and student is a glaring omission. An argument that I've heard against creating a standardized code of conduct on this issue is that yoga teachers aren't therapists or doctors, so the same rules shouldn't apply. But North American universities and colleges either strictly forbid or strongly discourage consensual sexual relationships between teachers, TAs, and students. And a code of conduct that was published back in 1995 by the California Yoga Teachers Association, which is the precursor to the Yoga Alliance, takes a clear stance on this and recognizes the inherent power imbalance in the teacher-student relationship. So I'd like to read a section of that code of conduct that was published back in 1995 by Judith Lassiter, uh, which echoes the ethical standards of other caring and teaching professions. So I quote, 
We recognize the trust placed in and unique power of the student-teacher relationship. While acknowledging the complexity of some yoga relationships, we avoid exploiting the trust and dependency of students. We avoid those dual relationships with students, e.g. business, close personal or sexual relationships, that could impair our professional judgment, compromise the integrity of our instructions, and or use the relationship for our gain. We do not engage in harassment, abusive words or actions, or exploitive coercion of students or former students. All forms of sexual behavior or harassment with students are unethical, even when a student invites or consents to such behavior involvement. Sexual behavior is defined as, but not limited to, all forms of overt and covert seductive speech, gestures, and behaviors, as well as physical contact of a sexual nature. Harassment is defined as, but not limited to, repeated comments, gestures, or physical contact of a sexual nature. We recognize that the teacher-student relationship involves a power imbalance, the residual effects of which can remain after the student is no longer studying with the teacher. Therefore, we suggest extreme caution if you choose to enter into a personal relationship with a former student. End quote. So, the one conclusion that I've come to is that there are no simple answers. And for the time being, I think it's up to every studio and teacher to consider and define their own ethical code, and that teacher training should at least include a module on ethics to help educate future teachers on the complexities of the teacher-student relationship and the underlying psychological dynamics that are potentially playing out. An overview of the yamas and niyamas just doesn't cover it. And this is why I wanted to speak with my guest, Livia Cohen-Shapiro, because she's someone out there who's really doing this work. And I think it's important that she's had the experience as a yoga student, teacher, and psychotherapist. So she's especially suited to leading this discussion. So with that, it's my pleasure to share this conversation with Livia Cohen-Shapiro. There I was in uniform Looking at the art teacher I was just a girl Tell him it was him. Oh, I wish I could tell him. Oh, okay, I got a little snoozing dog beside me, so that might come through the mic at certain times. So, okay. <laughs> so uh, I want to welcome you to the podcast and thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is that I heard you on another podcast speaking about the ethics of the teacher-student relationship in the modern yoga world. And um, I felt that you were voicing a lot of the things that I'd been thinking about in a really articulate and grounded way. And I wonder if you could just begin by speaking about what your background is and why you decided to make ethics a focus of your work. Mm. 
Yeah, well, um, in a sort of wider concept, I have always been someone who likes fairness and likes things to be, um, yeah, I, I've always really been interested in, is this fair? Is this equal? Is this just? Um, and if it's unjust, why? What are the dynamics that are happening? Um, I went to, and I got a sense of this quite early on, um, because I went to um, a Jewish day school. And um, I remember being, you know, at some point in middle school, and <clears throat> we would be in a class around like sort of like a, what would be akin to like a Bible study type class. And the, actually the person who was teaching the class was the rabbi of the synagogue of which the school was affiliated. And he would call on the boys and the boys didn't, he would ask a question. Plenty of girls had their hands raised to answer the question, including myself. And he would call on the boys, even if their hands weren't raised, he would like specifically point out a boy. And, and I called him out on this. I'd say, well, how come you don't ever call on the girls? And I would get repeatedly sent to the principal's office every time this happened. Hmm. So even from a young age, I was very aware of injustices within just between like the boys and girls in school and different kinds of Judaism and, it just never fully, that never fully sat well with me. Um, and I also watched some dynamics unfold in my parents' relationship that I was always, um, was very alert to. Um, and um, I started practicing yoga when I was 15 or 16. And I started teaching when I was 20. And um when I was in college at the University of Vermont and I was studying religion and psychology as well at the time. And um, I found myself in, not just in college and not just, um, not just in yoga, but I had the opportunity to be in a mentor mentee role at various times in my life. So I grew up as a figure skater and my figure skating coach was really more like a mentor to me than, I mean, yes, she was, you know, coached me in the sport, but she really was like a, a mentor to me. And I started to get a very visceral experience of what it was like to have someone who wasn't my parent be looking out for me and someone I could look up to and what, what the some of the dynamics of a mentoring model could be. And then when I, and that was a very positive relationship for me. When I was in college and I started teaching, I started teaching at a small studio in Vermont. Um, basically the owner kind of took me under her wing and very um, amazingly taught me how to teach yoga. Like I didn't really take a te teacher training at first. She taught me what she knew. She was not teaching a, 200 hour teacher training. This was like 2003. Um, 
And she taught me what she knew, very much like a trade art. And she was a mentor. And unfortunately, there were a couple things that happened in that relationship where the mentoring, the mentoring relationship went sour. And I think that was both, you know, obviously on both our parts, we couldn't really understand how to move through conflict together. And so it left me with an impression of, wow, um, that sucked. Mm. Um, and, and what would it have been, been like had I been supported? Um, and, and what would it have been like if this person felt like I had been respectful enough for them? And, um, well, what was the nature of the conflict? Can you speak about that well, a little? Yeah. I mean, basically I started teaching under their tutelage and, um, when I graduated college, I was teaching, um, full, I was teaching yoga full time. Um, I taught yoga and I also taught spinning. Um, and so I was basically a, you know, fitness and yoga instructor full time, that sort of classic, like 18 classes a week kind of thing. Hmm. And I felt like I, in order to support myself, I needed to teach at other studios. I was teaching, I did teach yoga at one or two other gyms. Um, but in terms of like a yoga studio, I wanted to teach at another studio. And the studio that I had been offered a spot at happened to be a studio where the owner of that studio and my mentor at the time, they had an ongoing conflict. Mm -hmm. And I got sort of trapped between these two women and, um, and my mentor like freaked out and said I was abandoning her and I wasn't grateful. And, um, and I think for her it was threatening for me to go to this other space. Um, and, but she also couldn't offer me enough classes, like logistically, she couldn't offer me enough classes to support myself. So I felt really stuck. Um, and unfortunately that relationship just didn't, it did not end well. Um, and I'm sure if we asked her how that unfolded, she might give a different, you know, she'd give a different rendition um, because truth is subjective. Mm-hmm. Um, but so that definitely left a flavor in my mouth that now looking back, I realize, oh, wow, um, we really didn't navigate a conflict and or a maturation process that was actually developmentally appropriate. That's really what I started to learn. And I went on to like flash forward a bunch of years, you know, more than a de- well over a decade. I now live in Boulder. I have my master's in somatic psychotherapy from Naropa. And one of the things that I have really learned, not just through that program, but just in my own maturation and also finding mentors that have been actually very reparative around the, my, my past wounding um, is that the key to a mentoring relationship or a teacher student dynamic is a very developmentally appropriate maturation process. And that's one of the things that I've learned from my two mentors. I work with a, a, a well-known yoga teacher. Her name's Christina Sell. I've been a student of hers for many years now. And, um, another woman, um, named Melissa Michaels, she's based here in Boulder as well. And she was one of the first five rhythms teachers out there. And she does a lot of movement based rites of passage work. And so, and one of the things I've learned from both these women 
is really what does it look like to move through a maturation process that is developmentally appropriate and how to deal with conflict. Mm-hmm. And I, w- I just wonder if I could get you to pause and yeah. um, speak a little bit about what developmentally appropriate means. Sure. Um, so developmentally appropriate would be if you consider like this, uh, sort of a natural, how we grow and mature over time, that would be when we talk about something that's developmentally appropriate, we mean what's, what would be expected of that age or what would be expected of that um, time frame in that relationship. So for example, you know, I have a two-year-old and at two years old, it's developmentally appropriate for my toddler to throw a tantrum. Like that's part of what, how she's learning how to deal with internal conflict and getting her needs met and being disappointed and being overstimulated and, you know, but what, where it gets weird is like, if you're 32 and throwing a tantrum, right? Mm. So what we're looking for is what do we expect is a, is, is really normative for that stage, that developmental stage and a mentor relationship or a student teacher relationship has a life cycle to it. So, um, you know, it has a beginning, middle, and sometimes an end, um, and all the spaces in between. And so dealing with conflict and maturation is something that would be fairly normal, but we just don't really understand that that much when we're in it. Mm. And I guess that when you're talking about a teacher-student relationship, you're dealing with two people who may be either more or less developmentally mature, and mm-hmm. so that's going to create a unique dynamic within that pairing, I guess, right? Yeah. I mean, and it also, de- I mean, certainly in the yoga context, we often have teacher student relationships or mentor mentee relationships where the age, gra- age gap is quite minimal. But think of a, the age gap between a kindergartner and their school teacher, mm-hmm. right? So that would be a, you know, a, um, a teacher, teacher student relationship where the age difference, they really are at different life cycles. But a lot of times in, in the context of yoga, we're often with um, someone who we're close in chronologically in age, not always, not always. Um, but a lot of the time we are. Well, most of my teachers have actually been, I think at least 20 years, my senior. Yeah. So, right. Which then <clears throat> brings up, some other aspects which are always interesting like i guess you would call it maybe a projection like if you start to see your teacher in the role of mother or father figure mm-hmm. and all the stuff that that can bring up mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah well the sometimes the age difference between a teacher and student can simply make certain dynamics more likely to unfold. So when you're with a teacher who's 20 years your senior, it is more likely that you could have transference of uh, 
a parental relationship because it's easy to do so because they're old enough to be your parent. Um, and it's not to say that that dynamic doesn't occur when the age gap is not big, but it, it is more likely to occur, I think, um, when there's a larger age, age gap. Um, mm -hmm. There's also the issue of, um, you know, the power differential that's there. So, yeah. you know, in a teacher-student relationship, uh, there is an inherent power differential. You, as the student, you have less power and less privilege than, than, than the teacher. The teacher has the thing you want, which is the knowledge. So the knowledge uh, or the, I mean, it could be credentials. Yeah. Approval. Yeah. Right. Knowledge, credentials, you know, approval, but, all those things. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's just, to me, that's just completely obvious because yeah. you're, you're going to a teacher because you feel you need something from them. That's right. And so this is something that I wanted to get into because um, I actually have worked with a teacher in the past who's kind of famous for saying, the teacher is no more than a friend, no less than a friend. Mm. And I think for me, I think that ignores this inherent power imbalance that you're talking about, because I, I just can't see how it could be any other way. Mm. Um, there is someone at the front of the room who's offering up knowledge, wisdom, credentials, whatever it is. And there's people uh, who feel that they're lacking something and they're looking to get something from that teacher. And mm -hmm. there's usually a monetary exchange involved. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's just kind of a no-brainer to think that there's a power imbalance. And I think when some teachers try to maybe shirk responsibility by trying to level the playing field and, and deny that there's any kind of hierarchy, I think that really sets you up for a lot of potential problems. Yeah, I mean, this is something that I've talked about at length um, over the years, which is that there is a a trend that I see with some folks um, in the yoga world to say, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm the same as you. I'm just up here for today. I'm, you know, I'm just like you, like that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And on the one hand, that's there's truth to that, right? Like I think um, the uh, like the gen like on a general on any given day, if I were to go teach a yoga class, I get to sit in the seat of teacher for that those ninety minutes. But there might be folks in that room who, you know, have a lot of wisdom and knowledge around what it is to be a parent. And maybe I could easily be their student around, you know, parenting skills, but that's not the agreement that we signed up for in those 90 minutes. We signed mm -hmm. up to talk about yoga. Mm -hmm. So um, this oscillation or this community of deference as my um, philosophy teacher would talk about is, you know, is okay. It's just that we want, it's sort of these like constant moving pieces of who's got the power when, where, and how. And, um, and when we, a lot of times when we say, oh, I'm just like you or whatever iteration of that comes out, there is something that happens where um, there is kind of a subtle shirking of responsibility 
And it sort of, I have found, devalues the experience of the student because it's saying, like, they are coming to you for something that they want, right? So, um, and we're also denying, like, if we're the same and we're equal, (laughs) then I shouldn't be telling you what to do with your body. Mm -hmm. So this combination of I'm going to boss you around with your body and tell you what to do and how to do it, but I'm your equal, that doesn't match up. Right. It's it's like um, devaluing what you mm-hmm. have to offer. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And it, and it also keeps teachers in a subtle space of not really taking ownership for what they have learned and how they carry those teachings, because it can be really, it can be very intimidating or sort of scary, nerve wracking to really own and live into the teachings you, you know something about. Because the more responsibility you take for that, the more um, open you are to criticism and pushback and making mistakes and all of those things. But taking responsibility for what you've learned and what you're proliferating is part of becoming an adult. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and I think there's something like that feels really uh, adolescent to me in that approach. And... um, yeah, it's always this uh, really interesting play. Uh, like you said, this oscillation happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like in my own experience uh, with this particular teacher that I'm speaking about, I think it felt to me like it was kind of leaving the door open for sexual relationships to happen. Mm. You know, like it was a way to keep that door open. And right, we're friends. It's all good. But at the same time, really speaking from a place of authority, saying right. these are the teachings, this is what it's all about. And by the way, we're just friends here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Really tricky. Really tricky. I think for some folks, it is a covert man- manipulation. And I think for some folks, it's an overt manipulation of power. Yeah, I think sometimes it, it's actually deep in the subconscious that yeah. this is all happening. Yeah, for sure. And then that gets into, um, it gets into things like spiritual bypassing mm-hmm. to, uh, yeah, denial of the shadow and things like that. Yeah. It's really complicated. <laughs> well, we uh, could make an argument for, especially in this, in a teacher-student relationship, on a mutually shared topic, there is a kind of friendliness around it where the person who's in the teaching role is sort of showing the student where to look. They're saying like, this is the book to read or this is the path starts there. You know, here's the skill you need to get to that vista. So there is this thing of like, as the teacher, I'm gonna show you where to look so there is a kind of hand-holding friendliness quality to it, I think at a core level, but the logistics of that really do involve nuanced understanding of power dynamics, especially depending on the age of the student, um, you know, the gender, a whole host of things, um, if language barriers, all these things that kind of make the power barometer go up and down. So mm. sure, I mean, the, the concept of we're friends, mm. nothing more, nothing less than a friend, I think at a 
at a core level, sure. And especially as you move into colleagueship, definitely, but that doesn't, that it doesn't negate that there are also power differentials happening. I think both could be true. Yeah. Hmm. I'm not sure where to go because, uh, there's uh, so many subjects that are involved in this discussion. And, but mm -hmm. I think one of the things like when I was listening to that podcast with you was that, um, your idea of ethics was rooted in psychology. And mm -hmm. so one of the things that I've noticed in my years of teaching is that in teacher trainings, whenever we're talking about ethics, it seems to always come back to the yamas and the niyamas of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. And this is a text that was, uh, that was written for like second century renunciate practitioners. <laughs> and I think because the sutras are so concise and, and pithy that they're really open to interpretation. And, and I think people are interpreting them in ways that are serving their own uh, values. Um, and I, I think it's like much more appropriate that we look at the models established by the medical and psychotherapy fields around ethics. Uh, because I feel like the the teacher-student dynamic is much more like the therapist-client dynamic. Um, and so some of the things I wanted to ask you about was the elements that are involved in that dynamic, things like transference and counter-transference. And if you could speak a little about that and how, mm -hmm. yeah, and how that works with teacher-student dynamics. Sure. Um... Where do I want to start? Well, first, yeah, I, I just agree with you that I think uh, the nature of what we're doing often in teaching yoga, and especially with the proliferation now of what's the umbrella of yoga therapy, I think that it is more akin to a client-therapist relationship even though we're not, or a medical practitioner, you know, even though we're not necessarily signing, when you go to psychotherapy, what you, when you sign a disclosure statement and informed consent, you're basically saying, I'm going to pay you X amount of money for this amount of time per session so that I can transfer my unfinished business onto you. And you're going to reflect it back to me in a good way. You're going to utilize my unconscious material that's coming out verbally and non-verbally to help me heal unfinished business or to help me illuminate my own consciousness for me. That's really what we're signing up for when we go to therapy. Um, however, when we go to yoga, we might not be saying that we're saying, okay, you can teach me yoga, but because yoga is a somatic experience, you can't avoid the psychological encoding that's already within the body mind fabric. So once you start moving your body, thoughts, feelings, and patterns emerge. So you sort of can't avoid some of that projection transference relationship in the context of yoga. So that's why I'm a big fan of using some of the um, statutes and, and um, regulate ideas for regulation that we see in the psychotherapy world. The other reason why I'm a big fan of that is that for me personally, because I am a psychotherapist, I feel like the denominator that I need to fall into in terms of my ethics of my work is, is the one that's the most strict. 
So the, even when I'm teaching yoga, I still need to be able to abide by the laws and statutes of what it is to be a psychotherapist in my state. So I can't just abandon that because I'm teaching yoga. I have to really lean into the thing that requires the most, the most rigidity, for lack of a better word. And that is what feels right to me. Um, I feel like to be in a good ethical conduct with my own and be in right relationship with my own work and how I'm showing up in the world. Even when I'm teaching yoga, I still need to be abiding by the other part of my work, which is the role of psychotherapist. Right. So what are some of those guidelines that you need to follow as a psychotherapist? Yeah. So, uh, oh gosh, well, I mean, it depends on, I mean, some of it depends on the state, right? Mm. Um, but um, well across the board um, yeah across the board can, I mean, can you sleep with your clients yeah i mean that that's the one that always comes up that's the, <laughs> the answer is no right <laughs> the answer is no you cannot sleep with your client you cannot have you know um any kind of sexual or sort of intimate relationship with your with your client outside of the well you couldn't sleep with them in session either what i mean to say is yeah. um the the, the relationship begins and ends in the therapy room. So like the context of the yoga of, or of the therapeutic relationship is in the room. So, and it's confidential. So the, the best example of that is like, if I see a client at the grocery store, I'm not going to go up to that client and say, hi, I'm going to wait for them to come to me. If they choose to come up to me and say, hi, I'll say hi. Right. But I'm not going to like t- go up and give them a hug or tap them on the shoulder. That's not actually in our designated relationship. We do this with yoga students all the time. Yeah. Um, so another example is, um, let's say I'm at the grocery store with my husband. I'm not going to say, if I see um, a client at the grocery store, I'm not going to say, oh, there's my client. <laughs> right. right. I'm going to wait again, wait for that client to come up to me. And if they choose to, say hello, I can say, you know, hi, this is, this is Elliot. This is my husband, but that's, you know, I, it's really in be initiated by the client, sexual relationships, intimate relationships, no across the board. And also if there were to be, this is a one that I think is useful for yoga folks. If there were to be a sexual chemistry, you're supposed to end the relationship, the therapeutic relationship. And you, it's not like you end the, it's not like, Oh, I'm going to end the relationship. Now I can like go ask them out on a date. No, it doesn't work like that. You can't be in, in contact with them. You have to let the whole thing lie, just be done for, I think in some places it's two years, some places it's three years. <laughs> you can't even act like you cannot even act on your impulse for two to three years. The relationship needs to be completely done. So this, like, imagine what that would do in the dynamic of, you know, the the context of our yoga teaching. I think we, and it's so complicated because yoga is a sensual practice. Mm-hmm. We're in, like, literally, it's a sensual practice. You're in your body, you're breathing, you're sweating, you're in tight clothes, and you're coming into contact with many different senses, often at one time. And no, and and it, it, it and it's a practice of invigorating prana, 
of moving prana, of moving shakti, of moving kundalini. No wonder you're having a sensual awakening. But we're so bred in our culture to turn what is sensual, sensual and sensuality is sovereign unto your own self. We turn that into a sexualized thing that needs to be shared. And so what I'm a big fan of helping other teachers work on is have sensual awakening. Let your students have a sensual awakening. That's theirs. That's yours. You don't have to act on that at all, if ever. So, um, And I think in that um, when the student is having a deeply intimate experience with their own embodiment, I think then that issue of uh, projection could come into play thinking that the teacher is somehow responsible for this incredible feeling that they're having. Of course, you feel like you're in love with them. Or you feel like, I mean, any any yoga teacher who's telling you that they haven't been in love with a yoga student before is lying. I mean, mm. I've, I've fallen in love with, with students before. I'm like, I mean, how could you not? They're, human beings are beautiful and you're watching them move. And they're also doing what you say, which is sort of a trip. So, <laughs> yeah, or, I, or not whichever whatever gets your boat you know so it's like i i think that um and vice versa i've had students fall in love with me or i mean think that they are in love with me it's it, it is it's a projection it's a projection of the sensual um eroticism that arises through the activation of kundalini and we misappropriate that experience we're so willing to make it into something that has to be shared right away or make it into something sexual and um or put it on the teacher uh, and it's really what a gift if you can harness that power back in, for yourself into your own sensual power i mean that's really quite an amazing process yeah and i mean that's that's what's really empowering yeah. And, and so when all of that's going on, um, the issue of responsibility comes up for me. Um, and for me as a teacher, I think the responsibility is on the teacher to be recognizing these issues of projection and transference and to really be aware of that, be checking themselves and also to help educate the students as well, to be open about these things. Like, well, that's what comes when you're in the position of power. You're, you become more responsible for that education process, right? So mm -hmm. when you're in the role of the teacher, exactly what you said, you become responsible for naming that occurrence as opposed to letting it unfold. Um, yeah, and... and, and kind of taking credit for it, right, right. <laughs> maybe not overtly, but just right. soaking it in, right. <laughs> right? Letting it, right, letting it, you know, fluff your ego to an extent that's unhealthy for you, right? Yeah. Or just I, what your wants are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so in psychotherapy, the ethical guidelines, like you said, are very rigorous. Mm -hmm. Now, how much of that do you think is appropriate for yoga teachers to take on. Yeah. And I think in here we have to talk about scope of practice as well, yeah. because there's a huge difference between someone who teaches a weekly yoga class at a studio um, and then someone who's working with people one-on-one -on -one, yeah. or in, let, let's say, retreat settings where you're living and eating yeah. with the students over an extended period of time. Yeah. 
so so is like is ethical guidelines is it something that can be scalable or should yeah. it be yeah 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 um well before i go there is it okay if i mention one thing about the transference projection relationship piece yeah please because that's actually yeah. kind of a complicated uh, psychotherapeutic terminology that well, i've been trying to wrap my head around for well, what i wanted a while. to say you know we toss around these words okay so here's the brief sort of a very, 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 very scaled down ditty on, on transference, counter-transference projection. Um, projection is um, when we play out a movie screen kind of phenomena about someone, um, you know, whether it's, sometimes it's our own, um, something we haven't integrated about ourselves and we, we, instead of seeing it in ourselves, we see it out in sort of a movie screen type way on somebody else. Um, but it also is the way that we like make up a story about someone. Like you see someone wearing a particular kind of outfit and they, you made up a whole story about how they, you know, are some well-endowed stay-at-home mom or whatever your story right. is. Well, actually, I think it's appropriate maybe to use an example in that um, the teaching context. So if you see your teacher and they're quite charismatic, they might be quite beautiful, they may be dressed in exotic clothes, you know, they might be wearing beads. <laughs> uh, and so then the projection might be that they're somehow have attained uh, a spiritual uh, right. maturation or development or something because of the way they look and right. what, you, what you put onto them. Right. Yeah. Okay. When now projection also can happen, you know, projection happens all the time between peers and colleagues. Um, transference and countertransference are terms that we use that involve a power differential that have to do with um, like unfinished psychological business. Like um, with the example you gave of the, with the yoga teacher, the student might um, then begin to transfer their own um, experience of uh, awakening, let's say, onto that teacher. So they become dependent, right? They believe that the teacher is the reason they're having that experience. That would be some, that would be transference. Or the teacher takes on a role of a mother figure or a father figure that would be transference where the, the, the student is perceiving them in a way that is similar to a different relationship in their life um, where there might be an, an original core wounding. Counter-transference is when that happens for the, teach, for the teacher towards the student. So it's not like as a teacher, we come all zipped up and tidy. We have our own, you know, unfinished business. And so the student might remind us of something in our own lives. Um, and there's different kinds of, of transference and counter-transference. Transference, the psychological term, when we use the term transference, it's more of like at a mental level. Um, but when we use the word somatic before it, that has to do with um, the visceral texture of that. Like um, yoga teachers use somatic counter-transference all the time, but they just call it intuition. It's like, how do you know what to say to the student at just the right time for the perfect adjustment? Mm -hmm. Or how do you know that the one, this one thing was coming up for them? Because you felt it somewhere in your body. It, it, it emerged. Um, that would be a, a, some, what we call somatic countertransference. Mm. 
Um, so if I could just um, talk about transference for a moment. Um, yeah. So in a relationship I had with a, a teacher who was also a mentor, um, I very much saw him as a kind of spiritual father to me mm -hmm. uh, in that he could give me things that my own father was unable to. Yeah. So we could um, we could talk about, you know, sp spiritual things. We could talk about yoga. Uh, and there is also getting approval from him was different than getting approval or not getting approval from my own father. Mm. And so there was something in that relationship that was actually quite healing for me. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So like, I just want to say, I don't think it's always negative, this transference, but maybe it's an integral part to the healing relationship exactly. that can form. Got it. So the, the, that's really the difference. So that's, that's where I was actually trying to go with when I, um, asked if we could go back for a minute because transference, counter-transference, projection, they get these wraps, especially in the yoga world, where they're viewed as bad. Mm. And transference, counter-transference, projection, these are naturally occurring intrapsychic phenomena. The, we cannot stop them from occurring. Like we're not supposed to just not have them. Like for with the example you just gave, that capacity for transference that you just described is literally the exact setup you needed for that precise healing. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're doing in psychotherapy is we're actually harnessing this naturally occurring intrapsychic phenomena towards giving ourselves a redo where we might not have had a chance for that otherwise. So it's literal transference is literally the thing that gives us the opportunity to have a do over. And so that's why the, the yoga teaching role and the yoga student role, I mean, he, healing attachment wounds can unfold not just in intimate relationships. It can happen through a teacher-student relationship, a mentor-mentee relationship. And you need a kind, you need that interpsychic phenomena of projection and transference to actually make that healing happen. So these phenomena aren't bad. It's just that for whatever reason, they've gotten a bad, oh, you're projecting. Oh, oh I have, oh. it's not really like that. It's more like, oh, wow, I see you as a spiritual father figure. That's why this relationship means so, is so important to me. Or mm. that's why when you said this thing, it was so hurtful. Or that's why when you said this thing, it was, I, I felt elated or, you know, any number of things. I mean, I saw this, the whole thing unfold so clearly when I watched the meltdown within my Anusara yoga community um, a few years ago. And I was like, oh, okay. So we're, we've been in the land of transference <laughs> and we didn't know it. And like, now let's really just call spade a spade and, and, and tease this out. And I don't think people realized to the degree that they were um, projecting on John or had these relationships, these transference relationships with him. And, um, and I always had a very positive relationship with him, actually, similar to what you just described. Like he was a kind of spiritual father figure, like in a good way for me. And it never was dark and ugly or got weird for me in my relationship with him. But I watched it unfold. But only because he didn't choose to exploit that with you. That's right. And and this is the real danger, right? And That's so when all this is happening, and it's, it's always happening, uh, but when it's happening under the surface yeah. uh, or even if someone 
God forbid, is conscious of it and using that to manipulate people. Yes. And so I feel more and more that in every teacher training, there needs to be at least one module on some of these core concepts um, just to, I mean, to protect everyone, really, to protect the teachers from falling prey to these subconscious motivators. And then um, so they can also like educate their students as well. It's just, uh, there's just so many instances where this is going on and it's being exploited consciously or unconsciously and just too many people are getting hurt. And I think some basic education around these things would save people a lot of pain and suffering. Yeah. I mean, that's why I do the work that I do. That's really how that experience in Anusara Yoga was one of the main reasons how my work got born. Mm. Um, and, um, I also think it's about ways of being transparent and becoming more human together. Like I said, you know, and you said too, that these phenomena are not bad. They're naturally occurring and they're actually what gives us the opportunity for the yoga to be so healing. And I think what's tough in our culture is that I think there is in some ways a tendency to say that psychotherapeutic healing happens over here in this corner behind this closed door and and my therapist friends might push back you know on this but you know the psychotherapy room is not office is not the only place that someone could experience something that is healing psychotherapy like psychologically to them mm-hmm. So one of the lines that I have to work with a lot in my work and um, is, okay, how is the yoga inherently therapeutic, but not necessarily psychotherapy? And there are things about the yoga that make it inherently therapeutic for the psyche, but we're not relegating it in the same way um, as what we would deem psychotherapy. And that's confusing for our culture that is very um, kind of hyper vigilant about where healing occurs. You know, in more traditional societies, it's just more—it's it, not as rigid in that way. Where we have a very sort of sterile view of where he- healing can occur. A lot of folks would never dream about going to a psychotherapist, but they do experience deep psychological healing in the context of yoga. Mm-hmm. And part of that is because we're moving the body, we're getting into our breath, we're having an experience of um, our own power, we get to look at our patterns. And ideally, we're doing it in the presence of someone who is deeply caring and attentive. And sometimes, and, and, and vice versa, like yoga teachers should, you don't have to be anybody's psychotherapist, you should feel free to refer out. Yoga teachers should be referring out all the time. Like literally... <laughs> All the time, every day, you should be referring students to a psychotherapist because <laughs> they're gonna because there are students who like they're gonna say I don't need therapy, I just need yoga. Well, that's bullshit because you're not yoga. Gonna, yeah, you hear yoga is my therapy. Yeah, like you're not gonna. I mean, that is true. Yoga mm-hmm. is inherently therapeutic, but without the container of the agreed upon um, parameters of what we're doing in that time together. You don't get the full benefit of the relational 
um, unwinding and re and repatterning that you could get with a, with a therapist. And then, and then there's the whole issue of like, if you needed like a, a psychotherapy that was more like a trauma based therapy, you know, to really help on like a somatic experiencing type thing Mm -hmm. um, to really renegotiate some intellectual or some, some patterns in the nervous system that affect your, your mind stuff. Sure. Or, I mean, if you've got some kind of more severe psychological issues. Yoga is not going to heal a personality disorder. Sorry. It's not going to heal narcissism. It's not going to heal borderline personality. It's not going to heal, you know, being hysterical or tending towards histrionic behavior. It won't heal that because those are things that get embedded at a very nonverbal. They're very early on in our relational dynamic. Now, could we learn some methods of self-regulating? Sure. Could we learn to be more attentive Mm -hmm. of our nervous system? Sure. Could we get a redo of a good parent-child relationship by having a great mentor? Yeah, potentially, so long as it's done in a good, healthy way. Um, But again, this sort of this call to be really transparent and really well-educated about what you're doing and why you're doing it and what allows you to be doing it. There's literally no guiding structure in our yoga ethics or parameters that says we're allowed actually to engage a transference relationship. Nothing in what the Yoga Alliance is offering or any other governing body is really saying, oh yeah, you can utilize transference to like heal this wound, but that's all over the place in psychotherapy because that's what we're doing. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's overt. Yeah, it's overt. And I think there's something like really healthy about that is when we lay our cards on the table and say, this is what's going on here, are the potential dangers. Now let's talk about it. Let's educate people. Um, if people are like, so I've been doing one-to-one sessions with people for a few years now and really early on, I started to feel like I was completely out of my depth because uh-huh. more often than not, the session would turn into a talk therapy session yeah. and I wouldn't be instructing asana or pranayama or anything technical. People would sit down and start talking to me about their lives and what they're going through. And, you know, I did my best to navigate that and and uh, be conscious of my own limitations. But I also started to start to get trained in some psychotherapy methods, somatic psychotherapy and things like that. And it's been really helpful, but it also lets me know uh, more profoundly what my limitations are. Because once I started educating myself about psychotherapy and um, uh, yeah, what, what can come up, uh, I just realized like, geez, I'm not equipped for a lot of what people are asking of me in this situation. Um, And I don't think that the answer is to just do your yoga and Shakti will take care of everything. Uh, I think there needs to be, for a lot of people, that healing relationship that has those uh, established boundaries and has the person who has the right experience and education to handle what's coming up for people and so that that gets into that the scope of practice thing yeah and i just listening to you speak about that experience you know that's one of the things that was happening for me that led me to naropa because i was noticing that that was happening in the private session in my private sessions 
a lot and a couple other experiences that I won't get into today, but um, I realized that I really was out of my depth and I needed more skills. And I felt like in order to be the kind of yoga teacher that I wanted to be, I actually wanted to have more skills to bring into the context of a private or into a, um, into a, a classroom and also vice versa. Like I was curious, like maybe I want to be a, maybe I actually want to be a therapist and yoga is the intervention. Right. So, Mm -hmm. um, I was very curious about that and I ended up at Naropa and, um, and I have a real soft spot. Like as you were talking, I just was feeling a little sort of tender because the reason why that's coming up is that they trust you. Right. So the yoga, you know, the students are, are starting to, um, um, divulge information, privileged information to a, a teacher because they trust them. And I think that that's a beautiful thing. When you finally find someone that you trust with your story, with your narrative, that is not something I take lightly. You know? oh, it's completely sacred. It's so sacred. It's so mm-hmm. beautiful. And one of the things I've, and, and, and again, it's what brings me back to this thing of like, I just think it's such a bummer that in our culture, makes me sad that we we are disconnected from each other and from community in a way where these kinds of like the holding of the sacred narrative is not part of the everyday fabric and sure i mean there needs to be time where we go into a special space with someone who's like you know that, that the keeper of that story i mean i'm sure all traditional cultures have like the story keeper i don't know if you ever read the book the giver which was, that was like a popular mm-hmm. book um, when I was coming of age. And it's really about becoming someone who holds the memories, who holds the stories, who holds the narrative and what that does to you. And, um, and I do think we need sacred and special spaces for that, but there are, is also something for it being very natural in our world that I think we've lost touch with a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do have a soft spot for, you know, yeah, I don't think, I don't think we have to just negate the, how healing um, a, a teacher-student relationship could be um, with just a little bit of extra know-how in, the, in a kind of a relational dynamic or um, it can go a long way and it can still mm-hmm. be in the, in the frame of, of yoga teaching um, because if you're skilled enough, you can keep being, bringing it back to, and what does this have to do with how you're doing this pose? So <laughs> one of the things that I learned is like, instead of letting someone just trail off into the narrative, okay, it's like, you know, I hear the, I hear the overwhelm in that. Here's just an example. You know, I hear the frustration in that story you're sharing with me right now. Let's bring that into the asana right now. Let's move that frustration through the body. There's no rule that says you can't move, help someone move their own frustration in their body. I mean, that's sort of like a principle of yoga. So, um, and as soon as they start to talk about it, you can say, cool, thank you for sharing that information with me. Let's come back to this practice right now. That's, what, that's why we're here. And so I think there is some sort of boundary setting. You're the kind of teacher that keeps finding that the students like, wanting to go into that narrative or that sort of more psychotherapeutic space, just keep getting, bringing it back to the agreed upon work, which is 
the the topic at hand is the yoga. So, yeah. Well, I guess for me personally, um, is I'm really interested in uh, in that kind of narrative and mm. wor working with people's stories. Mm. And for me, like the yoga is so much more than just the postures. It's the sure. the relationships. Um, so that was really interesting to me. So that's why I started to dig deeper into um, psychotherapeutic methods right. and, and how getting... can the yoga support the narrative? Yeah, and support the transformation. Um, yeah. Like in, in yoga, it gives us so many great resources to help us deal with stuff. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, I guess for me, that kind of relationship where we were talking about, uh, you know, the student's life and unpacking things and um, that was just really interesting. And I don't think that's for everyone and I don't think that's the way every one-to-one -one session should look like uh, but for me that was really interesting so I just decided to go deeper into that and right. I think like you I'd, I had this moment where I was like well maybe I should be a psychotherapist <laughs> and the yoga is the adjunct the, the right. yoga is the resourcing tool um, but then uh, I don't know. I'm in my 40s, and the idea of going to school for eight years <laughs> to get some kind of counseling degree is just out of the question. And so I think there's um, some good trainings that yoga teachers can take that are going to give them some basic tools and a basic understanding of the kind of dynamic that shows up in the teacher-student relationship. And that's one of the things that you offer, which I think yeah, is... Yeah, I mean, that's like the whole... That's the whole thing. That's yeah. the whole that's the whole curriculum right there because I do feel like there's so many yoga teachers out there who don't want to, you know, don't want to or can't go back to school for a clinical degree nor do they really need to. But we do need, you know, just like we have um plenty of of opportunities to study anatomy and physiology to better understand why we're saying the things we're saying about our body. Mm -hmm. That's what you know, the work I do, Applied Psychology for Yogis, that's what it's about. It's just more about at the level of the psyche. Um, yeah, I think it's yeah. so necessary. Yeah. Um, and for me, just where I'm more inclined, I'm not so interested in the names of the bones and all that stuff. Right, um, right. Some people are really into that and some yeah. people are more at that emotional, psychological level. Yeah, I mean, that's where my interest obviously is. Um so how do your trainings work? Uh, are they online? Are they open to people from yeah. everywhere? Yeah. So, um, gosh, I've done so many, a variety of different iterations of things. Um, I am often invited to do a module in a teacher training. So whether that's a 200, 300, 500 hour training, um, I usually am brought in to provide a module on, you know, I talk about uh, attachment, holding environment, um, relational skills, psychotherapeutic skills for yoga teachers, um, trauma, uh, shadow work. We have a whole unit on the shadow, um, the, how to work with the emotions. So there's a lot of different pieces of curriculum um, that I can offer. And so depending, I usually co-create that with the lead teacher and we, I design a module and I go and teach that. And depending on the nature of the training that's either open to the public or, you know, it's closed. I've done, traveled around quite a bit to offer those. Um, and I've also actually done a few times we've used Skype. Um, like if I come in for like um, an hour or two, we do Skype. 
Um, and we usually do like maybe an hour or two hours at a time over the duration of their training. And that's been kind of cool because I have a little kid. So that's mm -hmm. been, that's been a good one to explore. Um, and then I've got a lot of online things happening. My main course um, that I run for about nine to 10 months every year, that'll be finishing up um, soon. And then it'll start again in October. And that's really a full immersion into um, like the somatic layer of our being, how to track sensations, the, the emotional body, how to come to terms with our emotions and how to work with them, attachment patterns. We look at how the nervous system, different, you know, how, a whole unit of neuroscience, ways of building healthy community. We have a whole sort of curriculum that gets laid out there. And I actually am going to do my ethics course again in, it'll start in July. So, um, and that'll be specific to projection, transference, counter-transference, which we talked about, and the dual relationships, scope of practice, conversation, um, how to deal with sensuality in the yoga class, in the <clears throat> yoga room, um, hmm. things like that. And how to come up with, like literally one of the takeaways with that course in particular is how do you um, write out, just like you would have a bio or a mission statement, how do you literally write a scope of practice for yourself? Or how do you, um, you know, come up with your ethical guidelines mm -hmm. for your business or for your teaching? And a lot of times people um, include those guidelines that they come up with in that course or the scope of practice in their disclosure statements for private students um, or then in their studio waivers. So that's been really fulfilling to see kind of a new trend emerging with some of the teachers that have come to work with me. And yes, it's open, no any one particular style of yoga, all kinds of teachers. Um, and we also welcome really avid students, even if you're not a teacher, but you're deeply invested in the conversation, we, we welcome you too. Well, I really love this idea of uh, helping people to create their own code of ethics because yes. um, there's no governing body in the yoga world. Yeah. And so it's up to every teacher to be responsible for their own ethical conduct uh, because the Yoga Alliance isn't doing anything about it. And maybe it's not even their role. But uh, we do find ourselves as yoga teachers in this, um, I don't know, a tricky space where in some ways we are a therapist of sorts and in other ways we're not. And so it's very vague on what kind of ethical guidelines we should adhere to. And so I think it's just a, a personal inquiry into what your own values are and, and making that really clear for yourself and then I love this idea of putting that out there, like even having it on your website. Yeah. Um, like, this is what I stand for. These are my boundaries. And then when people start to work with you, they're really clear on that agreement, which is so important. It is. And yeah, I mean, you mentioned that a lot of what you've observed around ethics comes back to the yamas and the niyamas. And with all due respect to those, um, that, those concepts and that text, you know, I had one yoga teacher friend of mine 
um, say people generally know what's right and what's wrong, but that doesn't mean they're necessarily going to do the right thing. And um, mm. like we might have an intellectual concept of the yamas and the niyamas or what we think is right and wrong, what we've been you know, raised to believe, but the way that we justify our actions can look very different. And that's where, I mean, I, I call my course embodied contemporary ethics, because I think what happens is that we learn to either ignore subtle signs from our body or override signs from our body that really are telling us where the right thing is. Um, the, 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 sensory system, the, the, the somatic system of the body really is a barometer for boundaries. And when we start to learn to listen to that, it changes the whole conversation about ethics. Like you start to really feel in your gut if approaching that student for an adjustment is the right thing, or um, if uh, engaging a dual relationship is the right thing or having a stricter boundary is the right thing. You, and you start to get a real visceral sense of what that's like in your body um, and what it's like to override that or to negate that in some way. It makes the conversation way more interesting. So we spend a lot of time looking at how the, in, the, the internal sensations of the body inform things that look like rules, regulations, and boundaries. Well, yeah, and I think kind of conversely that we also need to develop our discernment and our and our sense of ethics to inform the sensual experience of our body because yes. on one hand, our body could be saying, yeah, give her that adjustment, man. She's beautiful and you're attracted to her. <laughs> but then, you know, it's the mind that's got to kick in and go, well, yeah. uh, uh, not in this context. Well, we have to also be asking like which part of ourselves is doing the talking, which part of ourselves is doing, you know, is really at the, at the podium leading the way. And, right. mm -hmm. um, I yeah. think that's one of the beauties of uh, body psych body centered psychotherapy is that, um, you tune into the messages from the body and you go into this inquiry into where those messages are coming from, where they're right. rooted. And that gives so much insight. Um, yeah, well, this is all amazing work that you're doing. And I think at this moment in time, especially, it is so needed. And so I really appreciate uh, the way you're presenting this and the way you're making it accessible to people. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And thanks for hosting. And I mean, I love I love to gab. So you know, <laughs> thank you for indulging my <laughs> my love of that. <laughs> Well, I think we covered a lot of ground and yeah. we touched on a lot of things and I'm happy that you do uh, offer the, uh, all those subjects more in depth in your courses. And I think you should write a book <laughs> and, and get it out there soon. Maybe even just a handbook or something. Yeah. yeah. I could be a rich woman by the amount of people that told me to write a book. <laughs> <laughs> well, if every one of those people would have bought the book. Then, yeah. 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 Yeah, thank thank you for the affirmation. I um, well, I, if you if you need some help, I've also uh, published a couple of books myself, and I'm a designer. So okay, well, and this is something that I think is totally necessary. Something that every teacher training should make mandatory reading. Thank you. Let's get on it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I feel passionately about it, and you know, frankly, when I started employing a lot of these 
what I'm speaking to in my own teaching. Like I put myself through the ringer and I would take what I was learning mm -hmm. at Naropa and really apply it to my teaching. And I was like, Oh, yeah. Okay. So like, this is working. This is a thing. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't just like come out of from Naropa being like, okay, you know, we yoga teachers need to do this thing. I really tried this stuff on. Like I really looked at what, okay, if I taught a yoga class from this perspective or if I incorporated this and I really did a lot of trial and error um, at that time when I was in graduate school and teaching at the same time and, and really found the places where um, there was a, a genuine overlap and a genuine need. Um, and I noticed um, just such a big difference in, um, in the quality of my teaching, in, um, the sincerity, in the, the depth of connection, in like the clarity of the boundaries. So I, I teach this stuff because I mean, to make a bold statement, like I know it works because mm -hmm. I do it. And I, I've, I've had the privilege of, of sharing it with a lot of teachers now who, one of the main things they they say is like just the level of clarity and the level of um, refinement um, and safety that they are able to cultivate and feel and settle into is has been strong for them. So, yeah, that speaks to why I think that this kind of information needs to come from people who have been yoga students and teachers themselves. Um, yeah. because I know for me as a man, especially, uh, you know, most yoga classes I teach are 95% women. Mm -hmm. And so that sexual dynamic is always present. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so I felt for myself, what is going on? You know, like what the potentials are in those kind of situations. Mm -hmm. And I think with education and more awareness, then all yoga classes will be trauma sensitive you know what i mean yes um, like you said the more i learn the more it informs my teaching because it makes me aware of all these things that are going on under the surface that before i might have felt but maybe i didn't quite understand it or you know know where it's coming from yeah. but when i really start to see what's happening i mean it's so complex these situations we put ourselves in and it's no wonder people fuck up all the time <laughs> Like people make mistakes because it's incredibly complex and dynamic and we're not as yoga teachers we're not given the kind of education that really empowers us to deal with those situations in a way that um is ethical let's just say yeah and even when needed find places to repair the mistakes we make sure that's a whole nother issue the uh reconciliation yes maybe uh yeah, in another conversation, we can talk about that. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Livia. I really, really appreciate this conversation. I appreciate your time. Oh, thank you so much. I looked at the Rubens and Rembrandts. I liked the John Singer Sargent's. He told me he liked Turner.
you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes and think about sharing it with your friends on social media. If you'd like to show your appreciation by contributing a few dollars, there's now a PayPal link at medicinepathpodcast.com. Thanks so much. Until we meet again on The Medicine Path. Extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.